The first reading is taken from 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 7. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willing, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. When they had finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers and sisters that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is a disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Father, make us trustworthy stewards of your new creation. And we ask your spirit to restore us where we've fallen, where we've failed, and make us diligent and and vigilant to fulfill what you've called us to do. For the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our world, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now we come to the last portion of John's Gospel. 
Now this last bit in John reads more like an epilogue as we're shown extra footage after the literary conclusion of the gospel had already happened when Thomas confessed of Jesus, my Lord and my God. That confession was the gospel climax and John could have ended it there, but he, he didn't. John didn't end it there. There was still one loose end that John was wanting to tie up. There was that hanging thread about Peter. You would recall that Peter had denied Jesus three times. Now all four gospels uh, record that Peter denied Jesus, but it's only in John that we get to see Peter's story arc resolved. It's in the story of Peter and Jesus that John would have us see three facets, three facets of God's new creation that had broken into the brokenness not only of the world, but even in our individual lives. See, in our Easter series, as Tim mentioned, we've been looking at the social dimensions, the cosmic implications of the physical resurrection of the dead. So now here in the final scene in John with Peter, we see the personal facet, the pastoral facet, and the particular facet of the new creation that now confronts each of us as individuals, calls us each by name. The personal facet pastoral facet, the particular facet. So first, let's look at the personal facet of the new creation. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to the last half, the last chapter of John. Here we pick up our story where we'd left off last Sunday. To recap, seven of Jesus' disciples had gone fishing one night and they had no luck. And then the next morning, Jesus shows up and then directs them to the right side of the boat. They miraculously haul in a big catch 153 fishes, that's when they knew it was Jesus. So Peter immediately jumps in, uh, into the water and swims for Jesus. Now Tim le- mentioned last Sunday, this was a very different Peter from the last time he was on a fishing boat. The last time Peter was so afraid of Jesus. Back off, Jesus, I'm a sinner. But this, this time Peter was so desperate just to get close to Jesus. Peter wanted nothing more than to be with Jesus again. So then when everyone was back on shore, Jesus had prepared a hot breakfast for everyone. He had a charcoal fire going for the disciples to warm and dry themselves from the night. Now we recall, you would probably recall this detail of the charcoal fire. It had first appeared the night that Jesus was betrayed. It was that evening when Jesus was arrested that the servants of the high priest had prepared a charcoal fire to warm themselves in the courtyard. And then huddled in the company of those who had arrested and manhandled Jesus was Peter. It was around that charcoal fire that he then denied Jesus three times. Now here in our story, Jesus was being deliberate here. He was being purposeful. He sets up another charcoal fire that morning. As though he was recreating for Peter the scene of his failure. And he was sifted by the devil and he fell through his sieve. And his faith, Peter's faith, got overwhelmed by his own fear. Now this was not Jesus trying to re-traumatize Peter or to haunt him again of the shame of his past, which was still fresh in Peter's memory. This was not Jesus ambushing Peter about what he did. Because he, Jesus' charcoal fire was not a nighttime fire whose light then highlighted Peter's fear. Jesus' charcoal fire was not a finger that pointed at Peter's failure 
to condemn him again of guilt, remind him of his shame? No. Jesus' charcoal fire was prepared in the morning, the light of the dawn of the new creation, prepared to serve Peter a meal, was there to toast his bread, to grill his fish, his fish, for him and his friends to warm and dry themselves, was prepared as a space of welcome, of safety, of mealtime, a space now for renewal, a space for restoration. Now, if we were to take this metaphorically, Jesus' charcoal fire is a metaphor for the church, at least what the church and how the church should be. A community of the new creation in whose midst the rest of the world should encounter the risen Jesus, in whose space the rest of creation should find haven and peace and prosperity, in whose company all humanity could find renewal, could find restoration, rest for their souls, rest for their bodies, rest from their oppression. Now, is the contemporary church such a place today? Is our church of little T such a place? A space for the rest of Toronto. A space even for our own members, our children, our youth, our elderly, especially for the neglected and marginalized in our city. Is little T such a space? Do we make ready a charcoal fire as Jesus did with food not only for ourselves, but for anyone who may come and sit, may eat and share, be welcomed and embraced, and we pray that they may then encounter the risen Jesus in our midst? Are we such a space for the city? And we find in the risen Jesus a charcoal fire all the time, always prepared for us in his presence that we may then always find and have ready a fire for the world to bid anyone to come sit and eat, warm yourselves. Let's meet together and meet Jesus Christ. So then back in our gospel, we read in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now notice Jesus is not addressed Peter by his Greek name, Peter, but he addresses him in a Hebrew manner, Simon, son of John. This calls back to the time that the two had first met. Back in the first chapter in John, Peter's brother Andrew introduced Jesus to Peter. And when Jesus looked at Peter, Jesus called him by his Hebrew name, you are Simon, son of John. And then Jesus renames him, you shall be called Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter, which means rock. Now here around the charcoal fire with his friends, Jesus is recapitulating. He's recapitulating the calling of Peter into discipleship after Peter had publicly renounced his discipleship three times. Here around the charcoal fire with his friends, Jesus is calling Peter again into discipleship by inviting him to respond to just one question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? That question gets to the heart of what discipleship is all about, what being a follower of Jesus is all about, what being a Christian is all about. Remember that Peter denied Jesus by denying being his follower, right? Peter was asked, are you a follower of Jesus? Three times Peter said no. And we would think that for Peter to reverse that, to backtrack that denial, 
Jesus would ask the same question. Simon, son of John, are you my follower? Are you my disciple? He didn't ask that. Jesus, he asked Simon, son of John, do you love me? The call, the call to follow Jesus is the call to love Jesus. It's a call to a relationship with him, a friendship with Jesus. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, the question was directed to Peter, but John the Evangelist was posing the question to his readers. You who are reading now at the very end of this gospel, you are hearing this recited to you. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Whoever you are, do you love Jesus? After all that's been done in the gospel, seeing him, reading about what he's done for you, do you love Jesus? Now there's more underneath the question because the question was not asked by John at the very end when he just laid out all the evidence and the eyewitness accounts about Jesus, that he's the son of God. No, John asked the question around Peter, the chief disciple who after seeing and hearing and knowing who Jesus is, beyond a doubt he's God's son, that we heard that from Peter, you are God's son, the Messiah. But yet Peter did not believe at the very end. He succumbed to fear. He gave in to disbelief. He'd rather deny Jesus than end to save his own skin. He resolved to renounce Jesus not once or twice, but three times. In other words, underneath the question is, do you love Jesus even after you've failed? Do you love Jesus after you've renounced him? Even as you were afraid, even as you're discouraged and hopeless? Do you love Jesus in all of these things? In your doubt, in your despair, in your treachery, in your failure? I remember the time our gospel passage became alive for me during a moment of my own personal shame and failure. I was an undergraduate working as a youth worker during one summer at the day camp. There was one youth who was notoriously a troublemaker who had been misbehaving throughout the day. The youth had so annoyed and frustrated me that I lost my patience and my temper. I reacted in anger towards the youth. At my outburst, the youth clearly became very distressed. And when I realized what I've done, it dawned, dawned on me that of what I was capable of. I often considered myself a very patient guy, even today, but it was in that moment I was heartbroken not just by the distress I've caused to the youth, but I felt shame for what I never imagined myself committing. I never saw myself being able to do that. And then when I apologized to the youth, I began to weep and sob. I felt how weak I had become, knowing I've done poorly as someone entrusted with the care and responsibility of younger people feeling that I've even failed to be a Christian who named Jesus as my Lord, that I would obey him because of my unkindness, because of my rage, my being vindictive to someone younger than me who I'm supposed to take care, who was entrusted to me. I wallowed in my shame for a few days. And then in one moment I recalled this gospel story of Peter and Jesus and then I imagine in my mind's eye Jesus approaching me and asking, Orvin, do you love me? 
That's when I knew I could be restored. That's when I knew that I could be forgiven. That's when I knew that I could do better next time. It was existentially for me a sobering moment to feel deeply how weak, how vulnerable I am to my own sin, to the brokenness that I did not know existed in me, that I could be capable of. But it was also an illuminating moment that Jesus' love, his forgiveness and restoration became alive for me. Became alive for me like never before. This is the personal facet. This is the personal facet of God's new creation even today for you, for me. This risen Jesus would come to you and me. (laughs) Call us by name even in our failures. Even as we have betrayed them many times. Even when we are schemers of the evil structures of this world. He calls us each by name and calls us to himself. Do you love me? Return. Come back. Do you love me? The Methodist writer Rita Snowden wrote this in her reflection about what God's grace meant to her. You ask me what forgiveness means. It's the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced them. It's the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, Peter did not respond in his typical self-assured way. Again, this is a different Peter. He did not say, of course, Lord, I love you. He never said, I love you. Peter did not presume on his own resolve or strength of will. Instead, Peter invokes, he invokes Jesus' foreknowledge. Peter appeals to Jesus' omniscience, trusting that Jesus would indeed find in the deepest part of Peter's soul and heart a true and real love for Jesus. And even though Peter may not be even sure of that, but he knows deeply that he loves Jesus Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know everything about me. You know what I've done. You know that I love you. After Peter affirms his love, Jesus then confers to him this pastoral commission. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. This is now the second facet of the new creation. The pastoral facet. See, to call the discipleship is in a private affair. Being a Christian is not just you and Jesus having your own thing. The new creation has come. We must tend to it. The new humanity has come, a new community in the church. We must become part of it. Canadian theologian and pastor Bruce Milne, he wrote this. Jesus Christ is not a single person in the sense that he comes to us without other attachments. He's a married person. He comes to us with a bride whom he loves, for whom he sacrificed himself. Jesus entrusts to us his new creation in order to cultivate it, to tend it, to take care of it. Jesus entrusts to us a new community, the church, to become part of it, to love it, to extend its peace, to pastor it. Now that doesn't mean every Christian should become pastors. Yes, Peter's commission was specific to his call as an apostle and pastor, But the call to live into new creation has an inevitable pastoral facet insofar as it's a call to teach and to obey all that Jesus commanded us to do. Now, what do I mean? 
Now back in another gospel in Matthew, the Great Commission, Jesus said, go, make disciples, baptize them, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you to do. That's the pastoral aspect of the commission. Teach, obey what I've commanded you to do. Again, it doesn't mean we all become teachers vocationally. It means, it means if you're a Christian, if you call yourself Christian, we are to teach and obey the Bible. It's the call and privilege to show and tell Jesus to preach and do the gospel, to walk the talk and to talk the walk. That's the pastoral facet of the new creation. Now, if you're a Christian parent, isn't that what you already endeavor to do to raise your kids in the faith? Isn't that what we do and endeavor to do in little t, not just in our children's and youth ministry, but to teach the faith in the liturgy, in the communion, the sermons, the prayers, going through the church calendars and seasons. We're being reminded again and again and again of who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, what the gospel is. Now say you have a neighbor or a coworker who expressed interest to study the Bible. They ask you for help because they know you're a Christian. Would you know how to help your neighbor or co-worker? Say you have a teenager or a grandchild who has doubts and questions and struggles with the Bible, and they're still engaging with conversation with you. Would you know how to walk alongside them? Say you have a friend or family member who has occasionally been saying very rude and inappropriate things about a certain race of people or a certain group of people in society. What would you do? What would you say? I don't pose these questions to to suggest there's a right or wrong way of handling these, but these situations, many more like these, they're given to us as a trust and a privilege to tend and attend to because of the complexities of our own lives in light of the new creation. What do we as an Easter people do in the complexities, the difficulties of this life? in light of the new creation? What do we say? What do we teach? How do we perform? How do we obey? How do we exhibit the gospel? We can never approach life as professionals or expert practitioners. We will always be wounded healers, student teachers, forgiven conciliators who won't ever graduate from being apprentices of Jesus Christ. That's the pastoral task of the new creation. It's a sobering and humbling task. We're in this world. We're new creatures. We're to teach and obey the Christ's commands for us. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Teach and obey what I've commanded you to do. Now back in our gospel in verse 18. After restoring Peter, Jesus lets Peter in on his future when another time will come. And his faith will be tested. But Peter this time won't fail. Peter will stretch out his hands. It's a euphemism for crucifixion. He'll die for his faith. Then with that, Jesus calls Peter to follow him. Then here in verse 20. When Peter saw John, he, he got curious. Probably got, he got nosy. He and wanted to size himself up to the other guy. It was still characteristic of Peter. He was being nosy. Peter asked Jesus, now what about this guy, John? The guy who was very, very close to you, who leaned on your chest during that last supper. What's going to happen to him? Jesus' response to Peter was basically, that's none of your business. 
That's none of your business. Finally and quickly, this is the particular facet of the new creation. Each of our vocation, our calling, our stage in life, they're all particular to us. And we don't know what the future is going to hold for us, but we're in this right now in a different way. We're living in our lives differently from the rest of the world. There's no use or value or good comparing ourselves to one another. And because of social media, we're just always doing that all the time on a daily basis. But this should not be among us in the new creation community, comparing ourselves to one another. Paul said, what use is there if you compare yourself to one another? There's no wisdom there. Peter was called into something and John was called into something else. Peter was going to be a pastor and a martyr. John was going to be an evangelist and an exile, each to their own post, each to their own post. But the call is the same. You follow me, Jesus said. What is that to you? What is that to you about knowing this person's future or this person's fate or where they've come from and what's going to happen to them? Or what kind of fortune they have? Or what kind of good luck they will have in the future? What is that to you? You follow me. That's not for you to know. Be faithful right now. You follow me. Are you a professional? Follow Jesus. Are you unemployed? Follow Jesus. Are you a parent? Follow Jesus. Are you single? Follow Jesus. Are you in the university or college? Follow Jesus. Are you a teenager? Are you retired? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Follow him. Wherever you find yourself in this life, follow Jesus. The new creation has broken into our world and it has a personal facet, a pastoral facet, a particular facet. We're encountering Jesus. We must encounter Jesus personally. He calls us to tend his new creation in the brokenness of this world, in the brokenness of our own lives, but each to our particular post in life. Do you love me? Ask Jesus. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Come and follow me. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.